This is Mary with the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast, and I'm with Michelle at Chicago TARDIS. This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. In this edition of the Doctor Who podcast, we'll be talking to the lovely Michelle about her fantastic experiences at this year's Chicago TARDIS. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Doctor Who podcast. I'm joined in the camper van by the lovely Michelle. Why, thank you. And I'm joined in the camper van by the wonderful Tom. What well, do you know? We don't get to come around here too often when the others aren't here. So it's, it's actually quite nice to be here in your company. Yeah, this is fantastic. It's so much calmer. <laughs> well, we'll soon do something about that, definitely. Right. <laughs> so, hang on. so, Michelle, I don't get to ask you so often. Normally, I'm listening to your reviews. Um, I'd, I'd just like to ask you a couple of questions about you and Doctor Who, if that's okay. Okay, we'll see. Well, all right, so fine. Look, I know that Americans have a very specific experience of Doctor Who with PBS, but I also know that you have a very specific experience of drama in as much as you've got a, quite a strong grounding in theatre. Can I ask you, I mean, what actually brought you into Doctor Who and what, what, and what do you find within the show? Well, it's interesting you mentioned the theater. I've always been an avid theater fan, and that comes pretty much from my father, who who took me to the theater. There was a time when I was uh, in high school and when he was paying for the theater tickets that we used to go to probably 30 or more different shows a year j- wow. just just for just for fun uh, I was involved in children's theater but never never really as an adult beyond that other than as a patron but I have always loved theater and I I find some of the earlier Doctor Who some of the classic Doctor Who to be very theatrical I mean certainly some of the earliest stuff was essentially like a like a stage drama mm. only being being filmed and and I I find that doesn't bother me in fact I quite enjoy that I also don't think I mind sets looking like sets mm. as they often did in the classic series it it's just a part of the way i i experience stories i guess that doesn't bother me and perhaps that did help lead into my embracing the show back when I first saw it in the 80s. The other interesting thing is that my father ran live sound for small to moderate theatrical venues, not as a profession, but as an avocation. Mm. So I also have this love of audio and of sound. I never could have foreseen myself ending up on a podcast, but it seems almost <laughs> like <laughs> almost like destiny. Um, and so I have a particular interest in the audio venue of Doctor Who, and I think that's partly why I've fallen in love so much with Big Finish, which ties into the experiences I had at Chicago TARDIS. This is very interesting to me because what you're, what you're focusing on is this idea of being able to make something extraordinary out of the ordinary uh, and being able to step beyond what is clearly in front of you into a realm of the imagination, which which I guess is what is what unites us as Doctor Who fans. But do, do you see or experience or feel any material difference between, uh, say, drama from this side of the Atlantic and drama from that side of the Atlantic or the quality and, and rhythm of storytelling? Is there any real differences as far as you can see? Or? Uh, there certainly seems to be a difference in the way it's approached on television. And to be honest, the older I've gotten, the less American television I watch. And I don't want to necessarily say that all American television is bad. I, I don't think that's true. Hmm. Um, but, you know, when I picture Hollywood as opposed to BBC... <laughs> there's, a, there's a there's a definitely a distinct flavor, mm. um, and and I have I personally find myself drawn more often to perhaps to the British way, and, and and specifically Doctor Who. I've come to the point now where I have so much going in my life between oh between podcast and motherhood and work and et cetera et cetera that that 
I mostly watch Doctor Who now, and I mostly focus on Doctor Who. So, yeah, there 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 is a difference, though. This is interesting. Now, now here's the thing. I know as we get into introducing the interviews, um, because because you've you've been across to Chicago TARDIS with Paul Sprague and Richard Dinnick. Um, I know one of the first things that uh, Paul Sprague picks up on is that your pop shield looks like a tribble. Um, <laughs> I'm asking about differences, really. I'm probably trying to set up these false. Uh, uh, these false distinctions, but are the lines quite strictly drawn over there between Star Trek and Doctor Who, do you think? There's certainly a different flavor. Uh, Mm. Star Trek seems to me, this idea of the frontier, the final frontier, that is a huge part of the American psyche, the frontier, (sighs) and the moving into the frontier and the discovering new territory and the adventures that you have as you you move out across the frontier. And I've always grown up uh, on the western part of the United States. Uh, I've lived... I've lived everywhere from Death Valley in the depths of the California desert. I've lived in Alaska, you know, about as, as far west as you can get just about. Um, and and so the, the idea of the frontier and the wilds and the wilderness is near and dear to mm. our hearts in America. I think you pick up on that in um, in a thing like Star Trek. It, you do, and maybe that's part of what appeals to, about Doctor Who to me, because he is always exploring new frontiers. The show not only goes, you know, through physical frontiers, but the frontiers of time, mm. uh, etc. Although it, it's interesting, perhaps they haven't used that to the degree that they could. One of the interviews we talk about the fact that Doctor Who hasn't been filmed or even really set in all that many locations outside of Britain. Mm. Um, and there's a whole world out there, let alone universe, but there's certainly lots more places for the Doctor to go on his explorations of the Earth. So, I don't know, that's an interesting difference, just just in the way those concepts are exploited, American versus British. I think you're right. Perhaps the choice, when we're thinking about, when we're thinking about a show that's set in space and time, you've got the choice. Do you go broad? Do you go across the universe? Or do you go deep? Do you sit in one place and do you go down into what time has done? And maybe one of the differences between the classic series and the new series is that the new series tends to go deep as opposed to broad. I mean, I know mm. that, you know, perhaps we can get some feedback from the listeners about that. Certainly since 2005, um, definitely more than the classic series, we've seen a depth of exploration. What happens in this place between these people? As opposed to in the classic series, what we got was maybe what happens across time? What's what, what's the huge vista? What's the broad picture? I, I, I don't know. Does that, does, that, does that make sense? Does that sound fair? Well, well, yeah, I think it is. I think in the classic series, it was very much more the frontiers of space and the frontiers of time, whereas as in the new series, you have very much the frontiers of the human psyche and the human mm. spirit. Definitely. Mm, interesting. <laughs> See, this is this is why we talk to you, Tom, because suddenly we... <laughs> it's Onion Boy all over again. <laughs> yeah, because I drink far too much and think far too deeply about things which mean very, very little, but that's perfectly reasonable. You've been to um, Chicago TARDIS recently. Yes, exploring my own personal frontier. I had never been to Chicago, and so uh, huh. this this sounded like a wonderful excuse. The convention is held there uh, over Thanksgiving weekend, the Thanksgiving holiday for us here in America, uh, which is a big deal in late uh, November every year. Mm-hmm. This year, it happened to co- the start of the convention coincided with the 49th anniversary of Doctor Who, so it was particularly relevant. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Now, here's the thing. I, I know that there's Gallifrey that happens, and Chicago Tardis, I've seen on my radar. Chicago Tardis seems to be 
um, a lot more intimate than Gallifrey. I mean, I don't know if you've experienced both. I mean, how would you compare and contrast them? Very well said, and and they kind of call themselves sister conventions, which is one of the things that perked up my ears about Chicago since Mm. I had been to Gallifrey. I'd say where you measure the the visitation to Gallifrey in the thousands of participants, you measure the visitation to Chicago in the hundreds of participants. Okay. So so it is a smaller, although there's still plenty of people moving around, especially on the Saturday. The Friday and the Sunday of the convention were particularly intimate, uh, and then Saturday was fairly busy, but definitely a different scale from Gallifrey. Okay. Was there a different atmosphere? Were people slightly more focused? Is it more familial? How did you find the actual atmosphere of the place? Gallifrey is really famous, of course, for LobbyCon, which is really large and has grown and grown at Gallifrey to the point where, you know, in the evenings in particular, there are lots and lots of people in, in the in the lobby. I mean, I'd probably say a couple hundred. Maybe I'm not exaggerating there. Mm. Um, that was a smaller phenomena at, um, at Chicago. There certainly were people who hung out in the evenings, but, you know, we're talking maybe dozens instead of, instead of the larger. Um, people, you know, definitely doing the the convention thing focused on getting from event to event, mm-hmm. but most of most, you know, similar feel, but just smaller. That makes sense to me. I get the feeling with Doctor Who fandom that it's very, it, it is quite intimate. It is quite familial as opposed to other fandoms that I've experienced in a, but only in a passing way, clearly. Um, but a, a smaller scale convention with, with, with a slightly more intimate feel seems to, seems to be in keeping with the, with the ethos of Doctor Who. Yeah, it was really wonderful. Okay. Well, now, here's the thing. This podcast is all about uh, presenting two of the interviews that you managed to capture from uh, Chicago TARDIS. And the first one with was with um, Paul Sprague of Big Finish. Um, now, there's quite a lot of interesting and inspiring uh, material here. Well, one of the reasons that I wanted to go to Chicago TARDIS in particular is that it gets a huge turnout, huge by my standards, from, from the Big Finish team. And you know I'm, I'm a particular fan of Big Finish. Mm-hmm. So, so they had several uh, of their staff and actors and et cetera represented there, in, including Paul Sprague. And, and I got to tell you, I, I was especially tickled to get to chat with Paul because I think a little of what I said earlier about – um, you know, coming from from my father and, and seeing the behind the scenes work that goes into a production, and mm. I have a partic- particular interest in the people whose work doesn't always get noticed. Yeah. The people who who work a layer or two behind what what we see and what we hear. Yeah. And Paul Paul Sprague is one of those people who fills a multitude of roles in the Big Finish uh, staff in the Big Finish um, business, and. You know, you don't always hear what he does, and so it was a really fun chance to get to to talk to this gentleman. Okay, well, that's a great introduction. Without further ado, here is Michelle talking to Paul Sprague. This is Michelle, and I've got Paul Sprague here from Big Finish. And uh, why don't you start by letting our listeners know a little bit about what all you do for Big Finish, which I know is extensive. Oh, where to start? I, I particularly like, by the way, the fact that you've inserted your recording device into a triple. It's lovely. So it shows the respect for Star Trek that you have. <laughs> I, I, and he's starting out with a visual joke, of course, which, which, which shows really good things for the interview. I, I have a, I have what is actually a windshield where they told me Chicago is the windy city, and we are here at Chicago TARDIS. But, but yes, indeed, the windshield on, on, on this uh, recorder does look a whole lot like a triple. But I, I found that it also... <laughs> works as a pop shield so 
Yes, I, I apologise. I'm used to doing the Big Finish podcast. <laughs> Ruining it is usually the thing that I'm paid to do. Yeah, and so well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, at Big Finish, well, I'm, I'm technically credited as producer's assistant on, on pretty much everything. But um, the, the way it tends to work is, I mean, I, I was originally brought in to, to do bits and pieces. I, it was mainly sort of a marketing job that I was brought in to do to help. Uh, contact the bookstores and contact um, the magazines and basically make sure the right information was going to the right people at the mm-hmm. right time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the original idea was that the job of marketing things would be split between me and David Richardson and Nick Briggs, who all worked out of the one office. And over the years, it sort of moved and shifted and changed slightly. So um, David is now in the studio most of the time mm-hmm. uh, because we have so much stuff <laughs> that we're making. So it's very rare uh, for David not to be in studio. When David isn't in studio, um, he can mainly be found working from home, um, which is fair enough because mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. current offices are quite a distance from where he lives. Okay. So uh, he can get a lot more done if he doesn't have the transport factory. Um, Nick also occasionally is around the office. He will be editing together podcasts. He's doing music sometimes. He will be sat there writing things or reading things and making notes on things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but quite often also um, is elsewhere doing the same kind of things, but on the move. Um, so I'm the person who's sort of permanently in the office. So uh, I will send out scripts. Um, I will deal. Well, I was dealing with the covers, so the cover layouts for the all the little CD inlays I was doing. Not all of those, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I was doing sort of the main range ones and the Paul McGann ones. I did the first series of Tom Baker ones. Whereas now our designer, our sort of in-house designer, is going to be doing those from January, which means less work for me and more professional work. <laughs> <laughs> Because a proper designer is doing it rather than me, oh. who just goes, here are some pictures, that'll be fine. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but uh, I also answer all the inquiries, so I'm sort of our, our front line to some mm-hmm. extent with all of the listeners, with all the fans. So that's, that also takes up quite a lot of time as well, dealing with inquiries of, of all manner of things, you know, from right. where's my CD, what's my CD, what did I order, when did I order it. Uh, what's coming up next? What are your plans for the fiftieth anniversary? Do you like Sylvester McCoy? All manner of things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I produced the second series of of Highlander on audio. Um, I've produced the third series of Stargate. The main thing that seems to link those is that we're unlikely to be making more of them unless they sell a lot better. Um, I don't think that's meant to be some kind of suggestion that I've done I mean, a terrible, I mean, terrible so, job. So you have the Midas touch. <laughs> so I'm curious. You have this wonderful job working with Big Finish and playing in the world of Doctor Who and, and you know, Highlander and these other wonderful uh, uh, shows. Mm. What led you to this? How did, how did you end up working for Big Finish? I was asked nicely. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a kind of a right place at the right time sort of yeah, thing, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, I worked for a company called Visual Imagination, which produced uh, a lot of magazines amongst them, Starburst, TV Zone. Um, Shivers, the horror magazine, uh, Cult Times, Mm -hmm. um, Expose, Mm -hmm. um, Ultimate DVD, The Works, I think that's all of them, I think, probably missed one. Um, But it produced all of those magazines. Um, I worked there, um, I worked my way up, I eventually ended up, I I was editing Expose for a while, I ended up editing Cult Times, Mm -hmm. which I loved doing, I loved editing Cult Times. Um, And when Mm -hmm. I was a kid, I'd always wanted to be a journalist. 
Um, I, I said, when I was at school, I said to my parents, I, I, w I want to be a journalist and I'd like to work for Visual Imagination. And my, my first, <laughs> it was, I think it was like my second or third job, I did a bit of temping. Mm -hmm. And then I worked, I worked for the court service, sending out summonses and, ah. and writs to, to people <laughs> for about, I think, about six months. And so when advert in cult time saying we're looking for people, applied, got the job, went in, worked for Visual Imagination for about 11 years, I think mm -hmm. I was working there. But I, I mainly wanted to write. It was writing that I was most interested in. And so I just tried to get jobs writing as quickly as possible. And you know, huge thanks to the editor of Cult Times when I came in, mm -hmm. Richard Atkinson, who um, that there was uh, the first thing I ever did was um, the stars of Due South, um, Paul Gross and Callum Keith Reddy then, because they were launching the third series of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they came over to the UK, and I, I loved Due South, as most sane people do. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I knew the series really well, and I said, well, can I said, I, I appreciate that I'm not the most experienced person around here that you could send, but can I do this? Can I go and get involved mm. in the interview process and throw a couple of questions in and things like that? And he said, yeah, sure, go and do it. So that was the first thing I did, and from then on I was writing various different things across all the different magazines. But also working at Visual Imagination, attempting to cut this long story short, um, was David Richardson. Um, he was uh, the senior editor when I joined. Um, he'd also edited Expose, so technically I took over from him mm -hmm. when he moved on. Um, and uh, yeah, so I worked alongside David with him facing me on the other, <laughs> on the other side of our open plan office um, for many a moon. And he couldn't get enough of you? Uh, apparently not. <laughs> I was surprised as you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I was working with David for all the time I was at Visual Imagination. He basically was asked if he wanted to join Big Finish by Nick Briggs mm -hmm. um, when Nick was looking for people to expand the team. And then when they needed someone again, David said, oh, you know, I've got someone. Do you think you know, mm -hmm. Paul might be interested in coming on board? And like I say, it was part-time at the beginning. And then it was discovered that I was needed full-time and, you know, I was happy to do it. So, yeah. So has your writing always been in the journalistic non-fiction realm? Or? Yes. Um, I did write stories when I was at school. And I used to love writing stories uh -huh. when I was at school. I, I don't know, I just, I just don't feel I've got the confidence, I don't feel I've got the ideas, you know, I don't feel I, I can write characters. I, I, f I feel confident writing writing. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, oh, never, yeah. I've always found that it comes quite, yeah. quite easily to me. I don't know if, if that's true of everyone who's ever written anything, that, you know, if you can write, you just go, oh, I can write, I'll just do it. Or whether, pe you know, there's people who really have to work at it. I've never really felt I do. Mm -hmm. um, writing articles, I've always felt I can do it quite well. I do try and throw in jokes as well. Now, you, you do, you do Vortex, don't you? And I, I, yeah, I write, well, that's, that's sort of keeping my hand in, mm -hmm. <laughs> in a way, because I, I didn't want to lose the journalism thing completely. Well, well, I, tell I them what Vortex is, in case... Yeah, Vor yes, Vortex is, uh, I, I keep wanting to call it our in-house magazine. It's literally the reverse of that. It's our out-of-house magazine. Um, we make it in the office. It's um, it's monthly. It's twenty four pages, and it's it's basically some articles about that upcoming month's releases. Um, so it's available to download on the website from the first of the month. Might miss the first of December because I'm not because I'm in yeah, Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it is done, but I don't know what state it'll be in when I get back. Um, so yes, uh, I I do write some of it. Uh, it's, it's basically because I, I will go into studio, particularly for the end of a trilogy, more mm -hmm. often than not. I will try and get there when they've recorded 
or three. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily stand me in good stead all of the time because I then end up trying to transcribe interviews and going, that's a spoiler for the third one, that's a spoiler for the second one, to, um, the, the first one's out this month, I can't put any of this in. So it's, it's more a question mm -hmm. of editing stuff out than what to keep in. But it's good fun because it means that I get to meet the actors who play the Doctors and I've interviewed them several times now with the companions mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. occasional guest stars. And, now, it, you know, it's a lot of fun. From what I understand, the uh, the titles of these articles can be somewhat painful on occasion. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love a pun. I, I love a pun title. I can't I can't stop it now. <laughs> I, I, I used to love doing it. The Cult Times was just full of them, and some of them were just horrifically poor. And and also based based on the most ridiculous things as well, that that I managed to do. I, I actually at one point we had like an anniversary issue of Cult Times that we did. I think it was twenty years of it or a hundred issues or something like that. And and I just thought I'm I'm going to do a, a, a little piece on on pun titles. And I thought I'll pick out my ten favourites, <laughs> and in some cases explain what on earth I was talking about when I came up with them. Um, so I so I actually did run that. I think my I think my personal favourite is still that I did an Arrested Development article, and I entitled it Lunacy Bluth. Which means nothing unless you're a fan of the rock group Therapy, <laughs> who released a song called Lunacy Booth, and I, it's just—it's literally a joke for me and about three people mm -hmm. who might possibly have got it. But I liked it, and I was in charge, so I could do it. <laughs> what are your what are some of your favourites from Vortex? Oh, I, I don't—I don't think I can remember a huge number of them. I—I I, I was really, really impressed with the one in the in the most recent Vortex, which was the Ruth Bradley interview, which is called the Ruth of the World. I was I was really pleased with that because it, it's it's a Doctor Who reference, which mm -hmm. is unusual. Normally, it's just you know a pun on a name mm -hmm. if I can come up with mm -hmm. one, and that gets a bit tricky after a while. You know, by the fourth time you've interviewed Sylvester McCoy, trying to try to come up with a McCoy joke now, it's just almost impossible. They've all been at real McCoy, the, the unreal McCoy, just any variation of that. They've all been done hundreds mm -hmm. of times. It's like it's like when I was again when I was back on magazines by the sort of fifth time we were running an interview with Christopher Judge from Stargate. We've done them all. We've done all of the judge-related jokes now where there's nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I did like The Ruth of the World. Okay. Uh, a, couple, a couple of months ago, I did actually have uh, Alex Mallinson, who does a lot of our design work, and uh, Tom Spilsbury, the editor of Doctor Who magazine, who's also one of my oldest friends because we were at school together. Um, the, the, the two of them and, and I were at a party that David Richardson was holding. And uh, both of them said that they were disappointed in Vortex recently because the titles weren't punny enough. Mm -hmm. So in the last few months, I've been determinedly trying to come up with some of the, the worst titles known to man for some of the articles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of comic genius, that, that brings, us <laughs> brings us to the Big Finish podcast, which, yeah. of course, as a podcaster, I love podcasts. And mm. uh, one of my favorites is the Big Finish podcast even if it is an amateur. Um, <laughs> I forgive you that. Uh, but you have kind of a running reputation for being the comic genius of the Big Finish podcast. Now, this is interesting to me because it is blatantly a marketing tool. I mean, the point of the Big Finish podcast is to to sell us things, uh, and yet I love it you, to, to tune in week after week after week to hear you guys sitting around. It's an incredibly enjoyable format, uh, which is terribly sneaky and devious on, on, your, on your part. But um, uh, Well, I mean, it, it started before my time, of course. Um, Nick and David were doing podcasts before I joined the company. Um, I mean, I, I know that, that Nick basically harbours this ambition to be a radio DJ. 
Um, and so the, clo the closest he can get to that, I think, at the moment. I mean, he's appearing as d doing links and things on Radio 4 Extra, mm -hmm. which is a digital channel back in the UK. Um, and he, he absolutely loves doing that because he basically introduces their sci-fi hour. So he's, in some instances, introducing things he's written <laughs> <laughs> and things that we've made, which are then transmitted over there. So there's, there's that, but the podcast also enables, enables him to, to do what he wants with that kind of format. And, Live out and, that fantasy. Yeah, exactly. And, and he and David, you know, when David joined the company, he and David were, were doing them mm -hmm. together um, and just doing fairly straight, simple podcasts of, oh, this is out this month, uh, so's this, so's this, let's talk through these, let's tell a couple of stories of things that happened in the studio. And then it just, it just sort of evolved, or possibly more accurately devolved. devolved. Yeah. Um, I mean, I again, I, because I was part time, I would miss some podcasts and be in some podcasts if I was around. I, I loved them because it's just I kind of have to be the stupid one simply because Nick and David are the producers. They know everything that's coming up. They know all of the stories back to front, mm -hmm. and and I know a lot of it because I, I read the scripts mm -hmm. as they're coming in. But you know, I'm not going to claim I know literally everything about everything that's coming mm -hmm. up. So they're better doing all of the talking about the actual things. So I, I'm reduced to just saying rubbish, which, which suits me fine. <laughs> <laughs> it, it very much plays to my strengths. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and they are relentless oh, in teasing you. Yes, they are, yes. But, but I, I love it. I honestly don't mind. I mean, I've... Now, I, you actually mentioned in one of the panels, I thought it was interesting about yeah. um, how you got into science fiction and... and it tied into why you don't mind being the butt of the jokes. Yeah, exactly. It's because um, I was brought into loving all things sci-fi by my mum, who got me watching Star Trek and Doctor Who when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I always liked Star Trek. Oh, don't tell anyone. I won't. I won't. And your mum encouraged you. Yeah, and, and my mum, when she was a kid, also was really into comics and read all the DC comics, big oh. Superman fan. Mm -hmm. and, and to her everlasting annoyance... When, when she was quite young, she had quite a collection of comics by all accounts. And then one day just thought, oh, I think I've probably, uh, that's probably it for, for these. I, I don't think I'll read them again. Just gave them away to the doctor's surgery. And, mm -hmm. and you know, years later was thinking, I could have made a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> but but all gone. But she still had a few bits and pieces. So when I was a kid, I'd be sort of finding, th finding things and reading the Superman comics and Batman comics and things like that from, from the 80s. And then I started buying Star Trek comics. Um, when they started coming out and when I was at school there was a comic shop within walking distance of the school and so I started getting things more regularly, got a standing order and, and now it's very much the other way around so I, I buy almost everything DC puts out on a monthly yeah. basis um, apart from the Superman comics which I still pick up and get for mum so mum's still reading all of them but I'm buying most of them Good son uh, Yeah <laughs> But yeah, so she, she got me into it but um, so I'm, I'm very, I very much take after my mother with her, her attitude and, you know, and, and the things that she liked and we've always been very close but, but her and particularly her side of the family as well just never take anything seriously and, and are constantly sort of ribbing each other and being mildly rude to each other but, but none of us mind and so because I grew up in that environment I don't mind now. So you were perfectly raised to be <laughs> <laughs> to be the one they make fun of in the Big Finish podcast. Absolutely, yes. It's, it's all worked out beautifully. But, I mean, you know, I, I, I wouldn't take it if I didn't really love Nick and David. You know, I mean, they're, they're great to work for. You know, they're just, they're 
It just sounds really, like, really lovely. It sounds like you guys have a, a great work environment. Yeah, and, and the weird thing is as well that occasionally Nick and I will do a podcast or Nick and David will do a podcast, you know, and, and they'll, because they'll be in studio and I won't be there or two of us will be in the office or whatever. And, and it, it's not quite right, you know, because I'll listen back to them and I'll think, it's, it's, it's fine, it's, it's good, but I think it needs the three of us. Because it needs it needs it two does. people being serious and one person not, and you know that person sort of rotates from minute to minute, mm-hmm. because David will will just sort of sit there, being perfectly calm and normal and sensible for a while, and then we'll just so it say something utterly that ridiculous mm-hmm. that makes us laugh out loud. Nick is constantly making fun of himself, you know, and so we, we all just take a turn really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not claiming I'm a comedy genius that's what they say <laughs> that's, I, I that's refuse the label I refuse to say whether it's true it. or not <laughs> that is entirely for other people to decide <laughs> well you sound like you have a really amazing job in terms of the variety and, and getting to do this and that is there other things that you want to pursue other challenges that lie ahead or do you have the perfect job right well it's, it's weird because I've, I've never I've never really had ambitions as such because I like I say because I wanted to do journalism and I decided that so early that mm. that was what I wanted to do and had to do and then I got to do it so so I was just sat there thinking I'm doing the job I always wanted to do so firstly why would I give it up mm. the, the answer was the company went under so I had very little choice in the matter mm. I had to get out or there was going to be nothing for me to do at all um, but then after that I was sort of thinking well you know I, I kind I wanted to stay in sci-fi because it's, it's what I know you know, I grew up on it. I, I've watched so much of it. I, I know series back to front. I know the characters. I know names of episodes. All this stuff just rattling around in my brain. And and I remember my dad saying to me as a kid, oh, all this rubbish sci-fi you watch, it's not going to get you anywhere. So, <laughs> 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 um, But, uh, yes, it was... Uh, it's it's strange and and so so now I I'm in a job that I love again. I mean that's that's two in a row and you know it, it's rare for anyone yeah. to get one job they yeah. love yeah. consistently. And um, so yeah, I mean I I would stick with it as long as they want me around. I mean, again, I I don't know what I'd do. I mean I would probably try and go back to journalism in some way, but I I don't know because that because that's ever changing, uh, particularly because it's becoming more internet based. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, I hope it lasts forever. Um, <laughs> we love Big Finish, and thank you so much for the work you do there, and thanks for sharing some time with us. Yeah, that's quite all right. Mm-hmm. Anytime. Well, quite fascinating. I mean, thinking back to what you were saying before the interview ran, you're right. It, it, there are two things that I take from this. Number one, that if you stay focused on what it is that you want to do, then you will get there in the end, which is uh, uh, certainly borne out by Paul's uh, deciding he wanted to be a journalist, going to work for David Richardson. And I think to me that's quite an inspiring idea in as much as if you will stay focused on what you want to do and not um, be distracted by any, by anything else in your life, that you will get to where you want to be in the end. Um, also, it, it's clear that Paul's a, a big fan of the pun. Um, <laughs> that, that was interesting and revealing interview how, how did it feel to be talking to Paul I mean how, how did he come across to you it was really delightful and uh, I mentioned this idea of someone kind of behind the scenes sort of mm. in the spotlight and, and I got to tell you one of the things that I just loved about this convention every time I went to a panel or a presentation that the big Finnish folk were in or Paul was on with a bunch of other guys uh, and sometimes girls when they would introduce the people they would come out and people would cheer 
and Paul would get the biggest cheers. <laughs> and th- this this is next to Nicholas Briggs and Lisa Bowerman and this is some of the actors that play in the in the productions and Paul Sprague would come out and everybody would go nuts and I, it hmm. just I just did my heart good and he's a really really sweet guy. One of the highlights of the convention for me. Um, not only was interviewing him, but we walked back to the dealer's room after the interview, and we were so deep in conversation, we missed the door to the dealer's room and had to go back. <laughs> and, th- <laughs> and then he, he stood in the middle of the dealer's room with me, and I think we talked for another 20 or 30 minutes. Oh. And, it, you know, that was just special. You know, here was someone that it's not like the interview's over, I can escape this woman. Um, good yeah. guy, gen- genuine guy. One of the things that certainly comes across is that Paul's a very personable interviewee. And, of course, you, it appears that you're asking him exactly the right questions about something that he loves. So this is clearly uh, a, a, a good partnership. It'd be nice to hear more from Paul as time goes on. It's also good to hear that there is a, a career progression to be had through Big Finish that's not necessarily written in stone, but can be, uh, what's the word, can we say whittled out by, uh, by, by uh, a capable human being? I think whittled is probably the best word. Well, I think I think in that organization, as in many others, if if you do well, you know you get you get rewarded for it, and they they can recognize talent. And talent doesn't necessarily mean acting talent or writing talent. Talent can be organizational talent. Talent can be human relations talent. And I think I think those are some of Paul's strong points. Talking about varied talents and multiple talents, um, the next interview we've got on the show today is with uh, writer Richard Dinnick. Now, how did you find Richard? Now, this is interesting. Uh, One of the wonderful things about Chicago TARDIS is that they have this this option that you can take part in called one-on-one sessions. And it's one guest with just... A handful of people. It's in a fairly small room. I think this room sat a maximum of about 24 people. And I know they do this at Gallifrey, and they call them coffee clatches, but it's so popular there that you have to, I think, reserve ahead of time. It's pretty tricky to to get a spot. But Chicago is small enough, and don't tell anybody about this because we don't want it to get too big, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) they have these, you know, three or four a day, these one-on-one sessions scheduled where they have the, the guest, and, and you just go in, and, and you sit around a couple of couple of banquet tables, and you just chat for an hour. I had the chance to, to, to hear um, Andrew Cartmel, you know, sat right yes, across yes, from yes. the table and chatted with him for an hour with, with, with some other people, also Nicholas Briggs, and uh, and then Richard Dinnick as well, and, and that is sort of how I first got introduced to Richard, was sitting in on that and then chatting with him afterward. And um, it was a, a real wonderful thing, and it was able to kind of lead right into this interview, um, which was a great opportunity and another highlight of my convention. Perfect. Okay. Well, without further ado, then, let's hear the interview that you managed to capture with Richard Dinnick. We're at Chicago TARDIS, and I have the pleasure to be joined by Richard Dinnick. Hi there. Writer extraordinaire, and I know that you've you've written for uh, audio, you've written short stories, you've written for comics, you've written uh, novels as well. Yeah, so all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> now, just, just to let the listeners know, I've, I've waited to... Uh, sabotage Richard till Sunday morning of a convention and if you know anything about conventions Sunday morning is when nobody is conscious so it's a thank you very much. But, You're very uh, welcome I'm still alive just about. So. <laughs> uh, one of the things I've enjoyed about this convention yesterday uh, I got to sit in on a small group session with Richard uh, they have it set up in a small room where one guest can speak with oh a dozen or 15 or 20 
20 visitors to yep. the convention, which is really wonderful. And I wanted to start by asking you about a couple of stories that you told yesterday. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> because I think the listeners should hear them. Okay. Um, we, we got to talking about how you became a writer. And uh, if this were a magazine article, I would call this section Star Wars and Siamese Cats. <laughs> well, will you tell them a little bit about how Star Wars action figures figured into... Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes, I was saying that uh, I, I loved Star Wars um, when it came out. Uh, the interesting thing was that I didn't like the trailer. I wasn't interested in that, but the um, it didn't really interest me. But I went along to see it, and then I loved it, and I got the Star Wars figures. And you know, Luke Skywalker with the little lightsaber that came out of his wrist, and uh, you could swap them so that he could have a red lightsaber. You could take that out <laughs> of Darth Vader's wrist and put it in. But um, what I discovered was... Uh, playing with other children with the with the with the Star Wars figures, I'd go round to their house and they would have they go oh, yes Richard go and play with Paul because he's got Star Wars figures and they'd go they'd get on really well, so I'd go in there and um, Paul for want of a, 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 a better name would um, would say right so we've got we've got to, we've got to, I've got all the figures and we're going to do that scene in Star Wars where they're in the cantina, and I would go really. Why would you want to repeat or reenact with your Star Wars figures the cantina scene? Because what I was like, this is, I learned that I was playing differently to other children, and most of the other children I was meeting, uh, they were they were reenacting all the scenes mm-hmm. from Star Wars, playing out the things with their with their figures, and I thought, well, that, that's done. We, we've seen mm-hmm. Star Wars. That that happened. Um, and I had to come. Up, I had to come up with really inventive ways of bringing, you know, uh, uh, Credo into it because he was dead. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Credo's brother, you know, was in it. So the, the figure I had was, uh, in fact, he wasn't on my top list of collectible figures because he was dead. You couldn't use right. that figure in play. So I had, but he would, you know, as a race, you could use him as another. Um, whatever they're called. Now, see, this is great preparation for <laughs> Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so what I would do, I would make up new stories, uh, and I would in, in make up new characters, and I would actually, I didn't say this yesterday, but I would actually paint my Star Wars figures in different different colours and have different organisations going on. And, uh, like I said yesterday, with the you know, we had a Star Wars place, uh, a Death Star playset that I was given for Christmas. And um, that, obviously, for me, it couldn't be the Death Star because the Death Star had blown up. Right. So it had to be a second Death Star. So I got there ahead of George Lucas <laughs> on that one. <laughs> now, don't tell Toby Haydock that you actually painted the action figures. I think... Oh, I always had one, you know... A one tucked away? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't keep them in the boxes because, you know, this is when I was a kid. Now I have action figures in boxes. That you never play with. But I don't, yeah, exactly. Although with the children, it's very similar to Toby's <laughs> experience of them getting into your collection and, you know... <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I would have, I would have Luke. Uh, I remember I had Luke uh, in his, in his um, that brown. There was a figure that had, a, like, a, a brown suit kind of beigey brown mm-hmm. suit and it was his what he was wearing when he got to Bespin in, in Empire and I took that figure and I gave him black hair and I painted the suit white mm-hmm. I was very into the into very almost like comic book uh, simplistic colours of, mm-hmm. of, so mm-hmm. I, I thought black was cool white was cool and maroon was cool 
this was the 80s. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so I had, uh, I painted one Luke Skywalker white and gave him dark hair, and he was a new character, and quite often that I was in things. <laughs> so I was training to be a Jedi Knight. You know? <laughs> of course. Uh, as well as having a TARDIS, you know. <laughs> When you played with the Star Wars figures, you were creating stories yeah. instead of just reliving the Absolutely, ones that and what I would do told. later on is, to begin with, I'd just play out, I wouldn't do much thinking about it. Uh-huh. I'd just get them out and say, well, we're going to have, you know, the Empire's going to do this, and then Luke's going to come along and do that. Uh, one of my favourite characters was Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm alone in that, because he was just so cool. Um, and uh, I used him a lot. And when he was killed in Jedi, I uh, I had to introduce his brother, okay. Baden. Baden Fett. Baden Fett came along, uh, gave him a little bit of a repaint. <laughs> 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 you know, new character. He's got to have a new. So he came in uh, after Jedi. He was you know the remnants of the Empire were still hanging around and. And uh, there were all sorts of new dangers to face. Actually, Jedi freed up my imagination to go into different places. Um, I think Yoda might have had a brother as well. <laughs> Quite a lot of people had brothers. Okay, no sisters. <laughs> or sisters, you know. There was, there was, you know. I think, um, you know, Princess Leia could have been a could have been a girl band. <laughs> I had all... <laughs> uh, there were so many different versions of her. But then I started writing down. Because uh, I went off to boarding school and I didn't take my Star Wars figures with me because they'd get lost or stolen or whatever it was. So I, I left them at home. But what I would do is I would think about what I was going to play when I got home for the weekend or in the holidays or whatever. And I would start writing out the stories of what I was going to do. Not the, And this was actually really good preparation for writing synopses and pitch documents mm. because I didn't put any dialogue in there because I, you know, I waited to do that until I was actually playing with the things. Um, but I would write out kind of what was going to happen and usually I'd end on an ellipsis, although I didn't know it was called an ellipsis. <laughs> then. So I'd just go, and then this happens, dot, dot, dot. And I'd like be teasing myself. Yeah. I'd be teasing myself for what I was going to play and I was quite, you know, I'd get excited by this rather sadly, but, you know. But some of your earlier tendencies towards writing, it sounded like, kind of took you in the direction of journalism. And I was really intrigued to hear about the very first paper that you produced. <laughs> this is really, this is even sadder than the Star Wars. <laughs> this is wonderful. Um, <clears throat> my mother bred uh, Siamese cats. And uh, I love cats, I love animals. And my mother was also a journalist, so you can see my mother's big influence uh, in many ways. And I started to put together this uh, newspaper, which was, um, I used letter set letters, which were like transfers that you rubbed onto the, onto the paper. There were no printers. And I would, I would put, I would either write out in longhand the news articles and stuff like that, or I would, or I would put the, the full scap in the typewriter and type it out mm. and then like do return because you couldn't lay things out like you can these days in, in InDesign or Quark or whatever you know it, it was done really really it was amateur night you know but, <laughs> but, but you I, were nine if I remember correctly sorry you were about nine years old I was nine years old I was using full scap paper it was called <sighs> Siamese Muse um, and there, there, there's you know as I said yesterday the um uh, in the panel thing that uh, that that is also another lifelong love of really bad puns um, 
which has always stood me in good stead. It's always good, the titles of puns are always quite good. Um, uh, so Siamese Muse, I think there were about three or four editions, and it had, you know, the fr front page news would be like um, uh, something about the cat food, like there would be a cat food crisis or something. I'd make up the, the news stories, and I would illustrate them by drawing cats doing various things, and I'd have a cartoon like Peanuts, but only with cats in it, obviously. I think it was actually called Super Cat, um, the cartoon, <laughs> and I'd draw a cat with an S on its chest with a cape. Uh, <laughs> and, and then I'd do the horoscopes for the various okay. different star signs as well, just like, you know, just like your regular newspaper or magazine. Uh, I would really, I would, you know, put that together. Yeah, so I, and that, I did then become a journalist properly, but not on Siamese Muse. <laughs> Were you particularly drawn to the Doctor Who episode with the cats? Oh, yeah, no, I love the cat people, yeah. <laughs> and I love that joke in the Adipose one where the guy says, oh, I'm not a cat person. And the doctor says, no, I've met them and you're not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so you got into legitimate journalism. How the transition then into uh, Doctor Who and fiction writing and big finish? Well, I'd always had one eye on, on fiction writing because I'd written, after my experiences with Siamese Muse, and uh, actually Star Wars figures was a bit later, um, I then started writing my own kind of massive science fiction opuses, opi, um, uh, and uh, not, no, not necessarily Doctor Who stuff. I didn't start writing Doctor Who stuff till after I had... I wanted to create my own stuff, even back then. Um, but really, the, the person whose fault it ultimately lies with is Gary Russell. Oh, OK, we can blame him. Yeah, blame okay. him. Because he... I was introduced by a friend to him at um, uh, the Fitzroy Tavern. Uh, and they, there was a fan gathering there every month, or there used to be. I think they're still, still going. Uh, and everyone used to go down there, the people who were writing the books and Big Finish uh, used to go down there and all the fans would gather there and a friend introduced me to Gary Russell and I said I'm you know, really in awe of what you've done at Big Finish and I would love to write a short story for you. Mm -hmm. um, I, didn't, I didn't think I would be able to write an audio, I thought that was just being too arrogant or presumptive or whatever mm -hmm. to ask about that but I said you know internet and business related stuff. Um, so I worked on various business magazines and then the internet press. Um, I ended up on a national newspaper, but um, and Gary said, "Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely, you're a professional writer. Yeah, well, why not? I'll uh, you know pitch me something when the next one comes along." So when I gave him my email address, and when Solar System came into view, which is a, which was a uh, anthology that Big Pub mm. Big Finish published, one of the short trips. Yeah, short trips books. Uh, I, he sent me an email saying, we've got 10 planets, 10 stories, I've got 12 or 15 writers that he sent it out to, pitch me ideas and I'll you know, choose the best ones. And so I pitched him one, we changed the planet, <laughs> planet changed and, um, and, then, and then he liked it and he published it and that was that really. Uh, and we went from there and I moved pretty swiftly didn't do any more prose for a while. I went into kind of writing audio dramas and came back to prose uh, much later, mm -hmm. actually. Um, but prose was my first love, as it were. And I think because that's so immediate, and we were saying yesterday about how 
an audio drama or a, or a TV or film script is a real baton race. It's like a relay race. You pass the baton as the writer. You pass the baton of the script, the story, to the director and the actors and the producers and the script editors. Whereas with a book, it's kind of like the loneliness of the long-distance runner. Mm. There's, there's very little baton passing. Um, of course, you have an editor that you'll work with. Um, but nonetheless, the final product probably represents you in a way that the ones that are tweaked by all those other people. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely, because a, because a script is a real uh, team effort. Yeah. And I don't think you can be too precious about that because at the end of the day, the guys are all trying to make the best mm. thing that they can possibly... No one sets out to make something that's rubbish. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, funny that. Well, you've written prose, as you say, the short stories you've, uh, and, and novels, and you've written uh, companion chronicles. You've yeah. written at least a couple of those recently under your belt, Rings of Akiria and uh, The Wanderer. Yeah. You've done, for the full cast, I know you did Paradoxicide for, for The Sixth Doctor. Yes. Um, and you've done some adapting as well. You've done Sapphire and Steel. You've done... Um, Bernice Summer, Summerfield. Yes. And I'm leaving out at least one Stargate. Stargate, which is coming out next month in Do you December. Have a favorite range? Now, you said you <laughs> like prose, but. Yeah, no, I, um, I really liked Stargate, I have to say. That was. that was. Uh, I mean, I like all of them. I'm going to say, yeah, I really like Sapphire and Steel as well. And I really like. Which of your children do you prefer? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I was very proud to have written for Stargate uh, because to me, that was. Being you know little old England uh, and writing for Doctor Who that felt cosy and natural and whereas writing for Stargate felt like it was US it was MGM it was <laughs> you know um, that was you know big stuff uh, and I just love the characters uh, that that relationship uh, between uh, Vala and um, Daniel is just such a lovely and I that's what I prefer I prefer that kind of relationship that. Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn style bickering and, and camaraderie in Doctor Who as well. Mm. So I'm a big fan of the Doctor and Donna, for example. Uh, you were talking yesterday, and I was glad, glad to hear it, about character in the stories. And character, I'm going to say character versus plot, although that's probably, yes. not, that's probably not the best way to say that. But I, I know I've heard some writers say, oh, you can't separate character and plot. But you talked yesterday about how important character is, and I yes. find that as I go into a story, I am probably not... I mean, there's got to be a good plot, too, but I'm probably most interested in, in the characters and how the characters you know, relate and how the characters develop. I think the, plot, the, the plot's got to come from the characters. I mean, with Doctor Who, it's, it's uh, you know, generally science fiction, and it is, it's going to be a generalisation. You're going to have uh, a plot about an alien invasion or something happening or base under siege or something like that where you can almost have identikit characters if you're doing it badly. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it well then the characters are absolutely uh, interwoven with the plot. The plot is the character, the character is the plot. Um, and I think uh, that quite often you're asked about what kind of writer are you and people categorize themselves by genre and they categorize themselves by the format that they work in 
And I think you should. Yeah, I think you should just say, "Yeah, I'm. I'm a, a character-driven writer," because I think that covers you know all bases. You should say, you know, because I think that really is and true. I'm available to work for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'd be perfect for. Here's my you card. <laughs> oh, that's great. Now, now you've worked um, in the Doctor Who things for Big Finish. I know you've done First Doctor and Third Doctor and Sixth Doctor. I, it's interesting hearing you talk about painting your. Star Wars figures, black and white, <laughs> because some of some of what I would say is your best work has been done for the black and white <laughs> audio. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, Ooh, that's delving deep into the psyche there. Do you gravitate towards that, or is that just what got offered to you? Um, In terms of the older doctors, I got offered. I, I, my doctor was John Pertwee, so he's very much color doctor. Um, Oh, that's true. That's true. I uh, although quite a lot of his stuff existed in black and white, and when we did see it on on video, even when it started coming out on video, some episodes were just in black and white. Some stories were just in black and white because they didn't have the color print. Mm. Um, but I also loved seeing, you know, when we got the repeats on telly and we and, and the videos started coming out. I I love that black and white era. Yeah, absolutely. Do I prefer it? I don't know. I was thinking of A Star is Born, too, which was a short story you did. Yes. And that's the first first Doctor. Yeah, so yeah. Anyway. Um, the, um, yeah, I like the first. I like the first Doctor, and I like Ian and mm. Barbara and Susan. That setup, I like that. I, I just think that that format was, was so good for the beginning of the series. I think it was really tight and, 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 and well formatted, and I don't think that it worked particularly well when they tried to repeat it with Peter Davison. I think it, it mm. seemed crowded because yeah. the, I don't think there was enough differentiation between the characters and they kind of like had difficulty giving interesting stuff for Nissa and Tegan and Adric mm. or Anne Turlo to do. Um, I think uh, it can be very tricky with that many companions, but it worked so well because you had the kind of, it was a family show and here was a family of sorts. You had you know, the cantankerous old grandfather who was actually a genius, but he was, you know, a bit moody. <laughs> uh, and then you had the kind of heroic um, uh, science teacher and his semi-romantic interest, uh, the history teacher who was very uh, kind of pragmatic and practical about things uh, and then Susan who was you know the unearthly child but there was a family unit mm -hmm. there um, and I think that just works really really well and I loved um, the first doctor the way that worked with with um, uh, William Russell it was just and mm -hmm. writing for William Russell for the Wanderer was just such a privilege yes he's just he's just such a gentleman and such a legend and it was uh, the, my two highlights, I think, of my career in terms of writing for people haven't been for doctors. It's been David Warner and William Russell because they're just elder statesmen of of the British acting profession, and it's it's it, it's a it's a privilege to write for anyone, but particularly for people like that. Yeah, yeah, and I, oddly enough, my favourite range is the Companion Chronicles. Right. Yeah. Which are doctorless, but um, <laughs> typically. Uh, and maybe it's that character thing that you get to spend time with these characters and the actors doing the narration or, or the drama um, and you feel like you really get to know you them. You can get you under live, their skin. You live through the yeah. event with them. Yeah. Because it's first person narration, it's, uh, you, can get, you can get a bit of what's going on internally 
with the, with the characters. And <clears throat> with, a, with a story that John Dorney had been working on um, uh, called The Rocket Men, uh, another companion story. yeah very good story we were kind of riffing with the idea that this was a kind of emotional prequel to that that at the end of the wanderer he uh ian kind of realizes that the journey that they're on because it, it, it very much takes the premise that um wandering uh is not what they you know, they've been forced to wander. Mm-hmm. They've been kidnapped by the doctor. Basically, people yes. forget that. You know, he set off the t- he set the TARDIS off, and they got they went, and they couldn't they can't get back. Right. So um, at the end, he realizes that he kind of embraces the journey. Mm-hmm. There was that. Remember there was that thing in Voyager where they where they had that season where they embraced the journey. I wanted to kind of, kind of do that for Ian. Uh, whereas on, on television, they always seem to have embraced the journey. A little bit too easily for my liking, okay. but what I wanted to do with with Ian was make him make make him <laughs> uh, get to a point where he realised that he was on this journey. There's nothing he could do about it, but he had this wonderful companion in Barbara, mm-hmm. who he could identify with because she, she was from his time. And it was kind of like there were two groups of travellers in that TARDIS. There was the Doctor and Susan. And they had each other, mm-hmm. and Ian and Barbara, and they had each other. And he realised it actually wasn't that bad, and it, it was it was actually quite nice. And then, of course, John then did the Rocket Men, and uh, where Ian actually realises that he's in love with Barbara. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, but you can you can play far more with with the character development mm-hmm. in the, I think in the Companion Chronicles, mm-hmm. which is why I like they're more intimate. They're s- slightly smaller stories, more intimate. Yeah, I, I like the Companion Chronicles. <laughs> that that idea of intimacy. Um, another one of the panels here um, had Gary Russell and yeah. you and Tony Lee, I think, were on it talking about writing for different media. And the idea that audio is at its best when it's intimate, mm. or, or can be at its best when it's intimate. And there was the big debate about how many spaceships can you have <laughs> <in> audio. <laughs> And the one <coughs> argument went, well, you can have 10,000 spaceships because yes. it's all in your mind. And the other argument went, yes, but audio is really at its strongest when, it, when it's most intimate. Yeah, no, I think, I think Gary's right. I mean, you, you, can, you can absolutely have 10,000 spaceships. And what, what Gary was saying there is absolutely right. Um, when I said, yeah, you can have 10,000 spaceships, well, you can. Um, not that you should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, just it's easy to do and particularly um, setting as well I was just using the 10,000 spaceships as, as shorthand uh, and Gary was right to slap me down on that because you don't really need to do that but I think in terms of you know you can take like with the Wanderer you can take them to Russia you know you can take them to different places I don't think uh, that Doctor Who when it's earthbound um, has gone to very many different places Yes, that's true. We still seem to set it, you know, quite a lot of them uh, have been set in America. New York. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we got a desert. We got a desert, and yeah, a couple of deserts. Um, yeah, it's quite often New York, isn't it? Even in the old series, it was New York. Um, and uh, so I think it's really good to be able to, with audio, there's no expense of traveling. Right. So you can, you can set up a, a place with with uh, with soundscapes and particularly with music 
um, motifs um, and the Wanderer was particularly good at that with setting up that Siberian setting um, and I don't think there's enough of that but you can you can even though you, you, your scope for uh, geographical location is 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 better and bigger um, you still have to have that that intimacy of the character the character moments I think I think the best the best uh, stories that big finish to do are the, are the ones that are very very character character driven uh, and I think that most of them are character driven these days um, I think always were actually I think there was it was interesting because um, I think some of the TV shows were just just you know quite plot heavy you think you know you think about uh, Robert Holmes who always did such brilliant characters and Russell who could create a you know um, he could uh, create a character you could identify plumber. with in a couple. Yeah, exactly, couple lines. a blue plumber. That's exactly know. who I was thinking of. <laughs> you know, who can who he, you just you could absolutely see that character in just a couple of brushstrokes, okay. and that's that's genius, um, and just create real characters that you can you can believe are you know doing jobs and stuff like that, um, but everything should come from from what people want or need to to achieve. So, speaking of what you need to achieve, <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on now that you can talk about? Um, not a lot, really. Uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, I've got my the Stargate uh, audios coming out next next month so for Christmas. That's a good Christmas present. That's a part of a box set, um, and that is uh, about that has Asgard uh, in them. The Asgard is is in that uh, trilogy. Um, and I've written one called Duplicity, uh, and that's about uh, Vala and uh, Daniel had to infiltrate a um, uh, a criminal organisation. Uh, it's the um, Lucian Alliance, mm-hmm. uh, Lucian, a Lucian Alliance base. They have to infiltrate, pretending to be kind of space piratey type people. Uh, and there's there's you know there's humour and there's action and there's you know a lot of things but the great moments of the of the two lead characters just having that relationship. Um, so that's yeah so that's coming out. Uh, oh I've got a uh, there's a Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I've got a, a short story in a forthcoming anthology called The uh, Encounters of Sherlock Holmes. So this is an original. This is an original uh, new Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, You've, you've done some great adaptations oh, for, the, thank for, you. The, for the range, thank you. but I, it'll be great to hear an original I story. love doing those adaptations. The, the Hound of the Baskervilles was just such, such a iconic thing to work on, and um, I have to say, it's, it's easy to stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, and, you know, because that, and it's, it's good because, you know, we you keep... You made Doyle look really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a really funny thing is, if you look on Amazon, it says, you know, under, it says Hound of the Baskervilles written by... Richard Dinnick and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's like, well, I don't know about that, but anyway. <laughs> um, so there's a short story which is all set uh, around or on um, the construction of the London Underground. Because um, really, even though the London Underground was like a massive new thing uh, in, in, in Holmes's time, in home setting, as it were, they very rarely used it. Um, I think it was used once uh, uh, where a body was was found uh, found by uh, some sidings or something, uh, and that wasn't even underground. So um, 
I wanted to use the, the Victorian underground, the building of that as a as a. That'd be a great set. Yeah. So that so that's that's that that's coming out. I'm quite proud of that. I've got um, I've written some horror stuff as well for in prose. So I'm getting a little bit back into prose, but also developing into TV. Um, I can't say what I'm writing for yet. I don't think. But it's not Doctor Who. I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, not yet. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, but writing on for, for the BBC. That's great. Um, so that's cool. And developing my own stuff as well uh, with um, with the BBC. Um, I've got a couple of things there that may or may not happen again. Can't really talk about that. They're in because, development. Are in they? development. Yeah, exactly. So lots of exciting things going on. Not a lot I can say right now, but um, you know, check out my website, follow me on Twitter. I'm bound to, to tweet about, uh, about stuff that's happening. You know, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been a delight to get to meet you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, I was really thrilled that Richard did that for me. We didn't have that interview set up ahead of time, so it was sort of an on-the-spot thing and, and was great to get a chance to talk to him. Again, very personable, very very amiable, um, just a really delightful experience. Mm. I, mean, I, I do get the sense that these are very much fans of Doctor Who, who I won't say can't believe their luck, but are thrilled to be involved with uh, the big Finnish side of, of current Doctor Who. I mean, did you get a sense of that when you were talking to, talking to these people? I did very much. I think that's part of what makes them um, down to earth, in a sense, if you will, or, or, or you know, able to, to chat with, because you're sharing your love of the show with a fellow fan. Mm. Um, and, and you get the feeling you could go on and on just as with any other fan about the elements of the show. That makes sense to me. I mean, I, I do notice that between Paul Sprague and Richard Dinnick, there is a definite love of the pun. Now... Uh, puns for me it, it's one of the puns are like marmite or vegemite if you're outside the uk in as much as for me i know what puns are but i would rather not be forced to eat them um i, I guess it must be a writerly thing but yeah it, it's interesting that they both have quite uh, quite a love for the pun you know i think maybe it goes along with being very verbal and this love of language mm. um, that, that you probably have to have to to be a part of this industry but um yeah that and you know the other thing they shared was that their mothers got them into science fiction yes uh, and i thought that was intriguing too well the, the phrase exists the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world and certainly um with with paul Sprague and richard dinnick it you know the, it had their mothers been less interested in the world of the imagination then uh, the universe of doctor who would be a slightly poorer and less populated place <laughs> Um, I have to say thank you very much for, for pulling these interviews in. It's been very interesting to listen to them. Um, but I, but I, I do want to, as we conclude the podcast, I do, I do want to ask a little bit, ask you a couple of questions. Um, now I know there's plenty of Big Finish coming out. Um, well, that, that's so. So, are, are you excited about what's coming up from Big Finish uh, in the anniversary year, or the potential of what's coming up in the anniversary year? I'm absolutely thrilled and interested to see what they come up with. I'm very optimistic that it will be great. Now, the things they have released in 2012 were just outstanding, I yeah. think, in terms of overall quality. It's been an extraordinary year for Big Finish. So if 2013 can build on, on the strengths that they've set down this year, it's going to be amazing. Now, here's the thing. I know that you're a dyed-in-the-wool Big Finish fan. How did you feel about the fourth Doctor Adventures? Oh, I've been enjoying them. I mean, I mean, you can't beat having Tom Baker back in the do the world of Doctor Who, mm. and and the big Finnish folk do such a nice job in terms of of crafting stories mm. and, and and showing characters off to their best. I mean, Colin Baker and the the Sixth Doctor always get 
uh, yeah. listed as example. The Jago and Lightfoot. I mean, they take these minor characters and they they do extraordinary things with them. Mm. So of course it's wonderful to have have Tom back in the fold or have him in the fold. Uh, and I look forward to what's going on. I think you know some of the stories I have absolutely loved. Some of the stories you know have been average to okay in in my opinion. But there's not none of the Tom Baker stories that I didn't enjoy mm. listening to. I think. Uh, Wrath of the Iceni may may be one of my favourites so far. Definitely great to have Leela coming up against a decent and strong female character. I mean, yeah, yeah. I have to say, I mean, it, it's 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 quite um, quite bittersweet, uh, I think, and poignant. But I know that uh, one of the things we have to look forward to in the coming months is uh, Mary Tam's uh, performance as Romana. Uh, in in the Doctor Who adventures, I mean, it, it's it, it's so unbelievably sad that she's passed away now. But to me, incredible that she gets to live on as this character a year after her passing. Yeah, so looking forward to that. That's going to be very very special and probably one of the better ways to mark the anniversary year. Definitely. I mean, it, the, as we go on, this show is has been going on for like fifty years now. So unfortunately, cast members are leaving us. Um, but yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that uh, perhaps the legacy of some of the work that these actors have done uh, in bringing new stories and, and pleasure and entertainment to, uh, to a continuing generation is, is, is quite phenomenal. Um, Michelle, what can I say? Thank you so much for making the time and providing these lovely interviews. Uh, it's lovely to be recording with you as well. Um, it's, it's also nice to get to the end of a podcast and have some biscuits left. Um, normally, ah. I know. Normally, what, what, what? Do the other guys eat them all? Oh, before we even started, they're in there. Ah, well, goodbye, biscuits, and hello, Tom. Wonderful. That's oh. <laughs> what the crumbs are. That's why I have to do all the hoovering before they get in here, but fabulous. But all right. <laughs> <laughs> but what can I say? Listen, thank you so much for joining me in the, in the camper van. My pleasure. We need to get you back over here in America for a convention one of these days. I'm going to try my best. I'm, 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 I'm actually going to be over there early 2013, so we'll see what goes on that way. But all right, what can I say? Listen, Michelle, thanks so much for making the time. And uh, what can I say? Guys, um, don't forget to join us uh, for the next Doctor Who podcast. It's always a pleasure recording these things, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. That was the Doctor Who podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.